Who would you say has got the lead in the race to build out a central bank, a global central bank digital currency? Oh, without question, China. Let's let's make that as clear as possible. China is ahead in all of financial technology by a decade. And it's important to remember that China started building its central bank digital currency, the digital yuan, back in 2014. So they've been at this for uh, eight years now. And it shows not just in the fact that they have a functioning trial underway for digital currency, but it shows because They've had a lot of time to think about how to roll it out and how to meticulously roll it out so that there are no accidents. So 10 years ahead, and it will take the U.S. easily um, another five years just to get out of planning and trials. That was Richard Turin speaking earlier this month on CNBC's Squawk Box. China's launch of their fiat digital ECNY or Yuan, or what the industry calls a central bank digital currency, CBDCs. This debate is especially noteworthy at the moment, given the issues surrounding sanctions on Russia and the changes taking place in the global uh, currency market. There's a lot of speculation as to whether China will utilise its newly minted CBDC to help Russia circumvent the restrictions placed on it by the international community, especially in respect to SWIFT payments and the like. I'm Brett King, and joining me on this very special episode of Breaking Banks are some of the world's foremost commentators on cryptocurrencies, CBDCs, and the impact of China's growing payment network dominance globally. And I'm JP Nichols. As we discuss the rollout of the digital yuan in China over the past few months, particularly leading up to and including the Beijing Olympic Games, where for the first time Visa was not the only electronic payments provider, We're going to dive into how people are using the currency on the ground and where Beijing's ambitions potentially lie with their CBDC. But first, it might be good for us to delve into the history of digital currencies and how we got to a place where, as Richard Turin suggested, that China is at least 10 years ahead of the United States in this particular race. Here's what crypto thought leader Henry Arslanian said on CNBC about the rest of the world playing catch up with China. We've really seen China lead when it comes to the regulatory front, when it comes to regulation on cryptocurrencies. How long is it going to take the rest of the world to catch up? Uh, Absolutely, Matt. I think there's no doubt that that when it comes to retail central bank digital currency, uh, China is years ahead of any advanced uh, developed country, a large economy from that perspective. And to put things in perspective, last Friday, the PBOC released a report where it mentioned that it has conducted over 1.3 million use cases with its ECNY that range from government services and and utility payments to transportation and shopping. And that there are over 21 million retail wallets and over 3.5 million corporate wallets. And to put things in perspective, uh, the volume of transactions that has taken place has been over 34 billion renminbi. That's 5.3 billion US dollars. And really this put China ahead of pretty much any large economy from that perspective. Let's not forget the PBOC has been researching the topic since 2014, has launched an institute on this topic in 2000, since 2017, and has started its pilots in 2019, 
while by way of comparison, many advanced uh, uh, economies and countries are just entering the space right now in the last couple of months with 86% of central banks looking at the topic. But again, many of them at the very early stages. So again, China way ahead of everybody and acting as a catalyst uh, for many other, other advanced economies as well. Dave Birch is a regular on our show, and so we invited him to first give us a little history lesson on China's use of currency and why the emergence of the E1 in recent months is such a big deal. Dave. Hey, Brett. How's it going? Good. Welcome uh, back. Look, I think the way to uh, the way to look at this is, you know, China was first into paper money, and, and it's going to be first out. So in, in a way, you could kind of look at the last 800 years as a sort of a bit of an experiment with paper money. I mean, the Chinese, you know, they think, you know, according to our kind of Orientalism, you know, they have more strategic long-term views of things than we do. Not hard, you should think some of the people we work for. Um, but uh, but the experiment's over, right? So um, paper money was- Well, wasn't it even, it wasn't even paper in the first first case, was it in China? It was leather, right? Well, the, the, you know, there's the, a, a variety of sort of non- metal you know where sort of writing took over as the technology but but the point is it was successful it, it took off very quickly because if you think of the the problem of merchants carting huge strings of coins around china to do business um it, it, it's it's interesting to me actually i've just been reading a history of uh, of china's money in which it's noted that when the paper money was first introduced it sold at a premium and you know, people paid more because it was so convenient. The premium was about 10%, in fact. So it was a very successful product. And it contributed symbiotically to, to sort of Pax Mongolia and, and, and the great growth of Chinese trade and industry. Because the fact, and, and remember when, when, um, when Marco Polo showed up, uh, he was, you know, shocked. I mean, he tells the story for European audiences in order to shock them, obviously. But, but you have to kind of think when he writes, that he went to China and he saw people using paper instead of gold and silver. That's astonishing, right? That was a shock to people to read that. It's a bit like when you came back from China and told me people were paying for things with mobile phones. I'm like, oh my God, in America, that's like in Blade Runner. No one's ever heard of that. So it was very successful. It caught on very quickly and it contributed to economic growth, which is a sort of crucial point. Um, That first tranche of paper money collapsed because of hyperinflation, which is also a lesson in itself, which we you know we need to learn from the future. But if we cut if we come forward to today, we have a slightly different so so in other words, the problem with um carting around iron bars and lumps of copper and great strings of coins is easily articulatable. And uh you know paper, the emperor's you know paper money was a fantastic solution to that. I think what's slightly different now is that you know using WeChat and Alipay and Visa and MasterCard and debit cards and mobile funds actually isn't that inconvenient. So you have to ask yourself, what is the purpose? That's the problem statement. Yeah. yeah, what is the problem that's being solved now? And there I think that, I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing different people's views about this, but I think now it's a slightly different point. It's a more forward-looking thing. It's, it's you know, we have money, works okay. We have debit cards, they work okay. We have all these other things, they work okay. But we're moving into a new economy, an online economy, a virtual economy. Perhaps it's time to have a little bit of a rethink about how money should work in that kind of environment. And, you know, money that has to work across physical and virtual in the metaverse, in the universe, 
that has to be better at stopping fraud and terrorism and all this sort of thing. When you add those things up, you have a bunch of different requirements. And I think why China is so interesting to the rest of us is the fact that they've taken a set of those requirements and done something about it and move forward. Does that mean we should kick off the program by telling everybody this is the best possible electronic money and everybody should copy it? No. Um, should we taste to people, you know, you guys should really pay more attention to what's going on in China and learn some of the lessons from it? Like, absolutely, yes. So I, I think a way to frame it, I mean, maybe you think I'm, but, but a way to frame it, say, look, China did the experiment with paper money. The experiment's coming to an end. Time to have a bit of a rethink. And we need to learn from what they're doing. I think that's a good argument for the whole Bitcoin thing as well. The argument was that in a borderless commerce world based on the internet, fiat currencies don't make a lot of sense. And so, you know, that was part of the the, the reasoning behind Bitcoin as a digital currency, even though we know now today that it had some design flaws that didn't make it particularly spendable because people I'm wanted not to hold sure it. how universal that view is, Brett. Uh, I, I think if you if you're if you live in China, if you're the Chinese government, I'm not sure you see the internet as this great global borderless world. Um, I think you see it as a world which is fraught with uh, you know fraud and criminality and bad behavior of all kinds. So I, I think we have to be very careful not to sort of project the way we think about these things um, across all geographies. But and also the other point I'd make about it is, you know, Bitcoin came from technologists. And one thing which I'm sure we'll touch on several times in this episode is it, it shouldn't be technologists that are defining how that next generation money should work. It should be society is deciding how that next generation of money should work and then setting technologists the challenges of how to implement it you know the optimum money for a for a i mean the optimum money for a small group of you know MIT computer science undergraduates and a bunch of rich white speculators you know that's not necessarily the best money for everybody for the future so as i say i think this is about gathering input and learning lessons it's it's not about looking at sort of a template for what the us should do you, you see what i'm driving at there sorry jp i think given a long enough time frame everything is experimental and <laughs> everything is temporary and as you said things that worked okay um things work okay until they don't and there's always uh as, as things change there's new sources of friction and for a country that basically pioneered the first use of banknotes it is perhaps fitting that today China is the first nation to have an operating central bank digital currency, even though it is still technically undergoing trials. While a lot of people are familiar with Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies emergence since uh, 2008, China was also experimenting with di digital currency back in the noughties also. Not in the way we think of Bitcoin, Ethereum or CBDCs today, but nonetheless, there were early, early, early examples of digital currencies in the market there too. At this point, uh, let's welcome uh, another guest to the show. Richard Turn. welcome back to Breaking Banks. Hi, JP, and hi, Brett, and hi, Dave. Thank you so much for having me back. It's a pleasure to be here again. Great to see you, Richard. 
Now, you've been on the ground that gives you a unique perspective as a commentator, and certainly uh, you've been getting a lot of traction in the media um, commenting on the uh, CBDC rollout. But maybe just give us a little bit of perspective of how um, the, the CBDC came about in China. Sure, I'm delighted to. And it really um, it really speaks to uh, Dave's comment about the merchants having the strings of money and the carts hauling the money around. Because when I moved to China in 2010, there was no WeChat Pay, there was no Alipay. And, you know, sort of really related to me what Dave was saying about the merchants with the horses and the carts dragging money around, because the largest bill in China is 100 RMB, which is around $15 US, right? So if you have a large security, I had rent security deposits to pay. So you need a lot of these uh, 100 RMB notes. So you go to the bank and you bring a backpack with you, you know, a little shoulder bag, because you're going to go and you're going to receive these 10,000 RMB blocks, and they just count them out. Here's a brick, and then here's the next brick, and you've got to pay you know, two months security plus the two months front for, uh, first rent or whatever for your flat, and you're just jamming these bricks into your backpack. That's what life was like before WeChat and Alipay launched in 2014 and became what I call version 1.0 digital currency. Certainly, they're not central bank digital currencies, which is the next evolution, which is where we're going, but they are the um, the prototype, the, the starting point for QR codes. And they're the, that's where China essentially went cashless through using WeChat and through using Alipay. Um, so yeah, um, it is a spectacular evolution to live through because I went from carrying backpacks. I remember the first time that I actually used WeChat Pay. And I do remember not using Alipay in the early days because it was only, Alipay actually launched a little earlier, but it was only for online transactions. So I actually have a Mandarin teacher, and one of her jobs was to, hey, buy this on uh, on Alibaba for me. And she, you know, she had all the the, uh, the computer set up for, it. and and she read Mandarin much better than me. But um, <laughs> it was, you know, a really remarkable transition to live through, going from carrying the backpack to the first time you use WeChat and Alipay, and now, for example. The digital services just keep on rolling out and getting better. So, you know, it's first it's WeChat and Alipay eclipsing the banks. The banks are digital dinosaurs and they don't know what to do. But now with the eight years from 2014 when they started to 2022, you know, the banks have caught on and the banks have got smooth interfaces and the banks can now do foreign exchange to the point where when I go to the bank, which is now almost never, but when I used to go to the bank about a year ago, the only people left in the bank had gray hair. And here's the irony of it. The people with gray hair would be asking the bank service people 
how to use WeChat and Alipay, which is really <laughs> sort of funny because you know the bank the bank people are are very patient. They're they're in fact you know they're a model. It's a beautiful thing to watch because the old people come up. The bank people are charming and really nice and polite to them. And they will sit there for an hour, especially now because they have time. But <laughs> um, nobody young goes to the bank anymore. Very, very different world than uh, when I got here in 2010 and you had to queue for an hour to go to the bank, which was another reason why people loved WeChat and Alipay. It was convenient. And one of the really interesting milestones in the rollout of Alipay and particularly WeChat Pay, who started this, was the Hongbao or the Lycee packets, as we call them, or we called them in Hong Kong. At Chinese New Year, people exchanged these gifts of these red envelopes uh, stuffed, they used to be stuffed full of cash. But Alipay and WeChat Pay give them, gave them the opportunity to do this electronically and provide these uh, the gifts uh, in the greatest gift-giving season in China. Uh, instead of Christmas, Chinese New Year, it's the big, uh, it's the big uh, season of gift-giving. And this uh, provided people an opportunity to use these new wallets in 2014 to give their friends and family and colleagues and so forth their first uh, electronic money in red packets. But of course, once you had a gift of some money sitting in a mobile wallet, then there was the requirement to spend it. And so this is where um, it was quite, it was a very clever innovation in China to use these red packets to get spending started. Richard, would you um, say that this was sort of the linchpin in launching um, these, uh, these mobile wallets successfully in China? Yes, because it was financial inclusion at its finest. When the original product was launched and they said, hey, you can send a Hung Bao, it appealed to everyone from someone who could send a sizable amount for a Hung Bao to somebody who only wanted to send one RMB, one Kwai, as we call it. And it was universal. And you really have to um, give WeChat a tremendous amount of credit for the marketing savvy but also the concept that they were building a designing a program or a payment system that was for everyone. Now, let me contrast that for a moment. Let's go back to the same year, 2014, when WeChat did its Hongbao or Red Packet. And let's look at Apple. And right. while one is really an example of inclusive finance, in 2014, they launched Apple Pay and they said, this is great. Please use Apple Pay. It's wonderful. Oh, and by the way, in order to use Apple Pay, you must buy a new iPhone 6 because Apple Pay will not work on prior versions of iPhone. So you had to pay to play. It's this concept that it was financial exclusion at its finest. I had to prove that I had enough money to buy the new iPhone 6 to be able to buy, to use the Apple Pay, as opposed to WeChat, which said, sure, you want to send one RMB because you don't trust us yet? Please go ahead. It's, it's all for free and it's all usable. Financial inclusion, financial exclusion. And um, 
the coders, the coders who originally started with WeChat were basically told, you must make this app work on the cheapest smartphone then available, not in 2014, but a couple of years prior. So they had to build everything very light and make sure that it was available and accessible to the broadest segment of the Chinese population. And again, how better than to access them than through the universal tradition of the red packet or the hung really was it's, a it's poetic innovation. it really is yeah. dave um put can you put in perspective for us how the mobile wallets in china compared with other mobile wallet innovations occurring around the world I think the I think in China we you know I think as is well documented in fact in your book if I remember um, you know what we saw actually was the emergence of the super app rather than just rather than just the wallets and so what we saw initially in China but in other places as well now is uh, frankly a, a massive step in user convenience I mean the consumers didn't need any persuading to have to use these things they liked having everything all together in the super app and all in one place. And there's no doubt that the uh, convenience afforded by that is real. Now, whether it's optimal for society that you have all this data being shared and cross-selling going on between these different apps, that, that's a sort of different issue. And even in China, they're being forced now to separate you know, the loan apps from the, from the payment apps and this sort of thing. But nonetheless, people liked it and it was super convenient. I'm, I think with CBDC, I think we might go in a slightly different direction because I think, in a way, it's more suited to sort of the smart wallet concept rather, rather than the super app concept. In the, you know, in the, in the, the money will flow between all of these different apps, but the personal information won't. And so um, I know that sounds like an awfully nerdish point, but um, but yes, I, I think I think we're we're beginning to see this separation of of sort of smart wallet plays from super app plays, and I think CBDC plays towards the latter. One other point I would make about those wallets, I think, is to a large extent the issue of wallets um, as it relates to inclusion, uh, and obviously a CBDC has to be an inclusive product; it, it can't be. It can't cover 80% of the population or 90% of the population. It's got to be available to everybody. Inclusion isn't really much to do with the money or the payments. Inclusion is much more to do with identity and you know, having the having the literacy, um, having the um, you know, ability, having the equipment and so on and so forth. So in of itself, it's not clear to me that a CBTC will make much difference to inclusion. Um, whether it's in a super app or in a smart wallet. I mean, what we need to, there are other things that are necessary to drive up inclusion. I, I'm not an expert on the ground in China as Richard is, but I, I would be surprised if the CBDC by itself um, was transformation on the inclusion side. China is one of the first countries where people quickly embrace cryptocurrency too. The first cryptocurrency exchange, BTC China, opened in 2011. Cryptocurrency was accepted as payment for services as early as 2013, but since then it's been a little more complicated. The rise of CBDCs has had a big impact on the broader crypto ecosystem as well. 
uh, for in, many, in many perspectives. First of all, it definitely has brought more attention to the crypto space. This really started since June 2019 when Libra was first announced. If you look at the data, for example, anything from the speeches of central bankers to media mentions, there has been a clear rise of CBDC interest and research and development and experimentation following the rise of, of Libra in June 2019. But also, really, the, the ongoing evolution and innovation we are seeing in the CBDC space is bringing more attention to the crypto space more generally. For example, in China, according to the latest data that we have, there are over 140 million Chinese who now have an ECNY wallet. There was over $10 billion in transactions that took place. And while these are not directly related to cryptocurrencies, it really shows that uh, CBDCs are here to stay. Uh, I really believe that in the next decade, most uh, large economies will have some form of CBDCs. They may have different features, they may have different functions, but I think we should assume that pretty much every large economy will have a CBDC. That was Henry Aslanian from the LinkedIn series Crypto Capsule, author of the best-selling book The Future of Finance and host of the Future of Money podcast. We met in, the New in New York at the Harvard Club to discuss China's CBDC launch. I asked him what the future of cryptocurrencies, stablecoins, and CBDCs might be in terms of dominance or cohabitation in our financial systems. Henry's projection of where digital currencies generally are taking us is pretty profound. I think traditional fiat money will always remain. The question is whether they'll all become CBDCs. I really believe that it's inevitable that we will have CBDCs uh, and large economies will issue them for a couple of reasons. One of them is it allows uh, policymakers to have a live snapshot of the economic activity in their country, something that fiat uh, money does not provide us right now. Second, it allows us to fight tax evasion. Uh, you know, we all know that you know if you, you want to avoid taxes, cash is king. Uh, and also money laundering. It basically, with a CBDC economy, uh, uh, money laundering and even corruption in the good old way of giving somebody an envelope full of money becomes a thing of the past. And also there's other features that we have, for example, making money programmable. You know, that we can actually, let's say in a COVID payment, I can give you, Brett, $1,000 in CBDC, but if you don't use it, I can, I'm able to pull it back. Uh, and there's uh, things like negative interest rates and other features that you have with CBDCs that you do not have with fiat money. So this is why I believe CBDCs are inevitable. Uh, and, and really the CBDC ecosystem will cohabitate side by side with the decentralized cryptocurrency space, very similar to what we have today with fiat money and gold, for example. The interesting question, though, is what's going to happen to stablecoins? Today, we have over $180 billion in stablecoins. What's going to be the dynamic of these stablecoins as we have CBDCs? Uh, I think we're still far from that. And I think some of the recent events that we had in the United States with the executive order of President Biden really emphasizing that we need more research on the impact of a CBDC on what they call the privately issued uh, uh, stablecoins. And I think that's going to be very interesting to debate to watch. If there's a U.S. dollar CBDC, what's going to happen to a U.S. dollar stablecoin? You know, Brett, it's very interesting today, despite the crypto ecosystem being the, you know, uh, decentralized and, uh, and being kind of innovative, uh, the vast majority of transactions still take place are U.S. dollar denominated, whether they're fiat or even a stablecoin. Uh, today, about 65% of trading pairs alone use Tether, USDT, and over 95% of them are, are using a trading pair that is uh, U.S. dollar based, whether stablecoin or fiat. So U.S. dollar has still a long way to go, even in the crypto ecosystem system. 
Coming up next, we'll talk about the rollout of China's central bank digital currency, how it's working on the ground there, and how this will impact cryptocurrencies going forward, right after this. Hello, listeners. I'm Brett King, the host of Breaking Banks. Together, myself and Dr. Richard Petty have recently released our latest best-selling book, The Rise of Techno-Socialism. We look at how inequality, artificial intelligence, and climate change are going to shape our world moving forward. During the pandemic, the wealth of the world's billionaires ballooned. The richest 1% added $1.6 trillion to their wealth, meaning that they own more wealth than the bottom 90% of Americans today. Unemployment skyrocketed during the pandemic, but artificial intelligence could disrupt up to 80% of the jobs today. These new industries we are creating will face labor shortages because we aren't training our students with the right skills. By 2050, we'll need to produce 70% more food to feed the 9 billion inhabitants of the planet, but we lost 40% of our farmland to erosion and pollution in the last 50 years. By 2050, 570 global cities face inundation from sea rise. Miami, Guangzhou, New York, Calcutta and Shanghai are just the top five cities. If you want to know more about the solutions to these problems, check out The Rise of Techno-Socialism, our latest best-selling book. You can get it on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or go to riseoftechnosocialism.com to find out more. Welcome to the future. Welcome back to Breaking Banks. China's trial of their central bank digital currency started in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic, but that trial now spans more than a dozen cities in China, and more recently, the ECMY wallet was a feature of the Beijing Olympics. Here's how one Chinese citizen described their participation in the ECMY wallet trials in China that are happening today. I've been on frequent business trips to Shanghai and Shenzhen recently. I used ECNY in Shanghai last December, and I've always been interested in it. As soon as the ECNY was issued, I downloaded the app for tests. So where is it being used? I have used it several times in shopping stores and malls. There are some business circles in Shanghai that support ECNY payment, such as Nanjing Road, Xindiandi, Beihai Beach, and Shuhaowei. I have often used it for online shopping several times. Rich, can you tell us a little bit more about uh, how widespread the trials are in China of the ECMY wallet? Yeah, sure, Brett. Um, it's really interesting. Right now, we're up to 17 cities, plus one, and plus one is the Olympic venue, or this summer, it's going to be a plus one of the Asian Games, which is also going to use digital currency or the ECNY, um, just like the Olympics did. So the thing to understand about it, though, is that while it's in 18 cities, including my beloved Shanghai, where I live, it's not well adopted. It's hard to find in the store. So I can't use it at my local supermarket. I can use it at McDonald's, which is not my favorite, but I can also use it at a, a Japanese clothing store, a big chain. And uh, But my local coffee shop and many of the other small shops aren't using it 
just yet. So it's still in what's called trial phase, and um, it's coming, and it's doing lots of interesting things, which being used for larger volume payments now or higher higher number payments. Um, but it's not everywhere. You're not going to see the ECNY symbol on display in every shore, every store that you look at. You know, Richard's point about coverage, I think, is a really interesting lesson that we should feed into our CBDCs. And actually, I've, I've written about this going back to the days of Mondex as well. If the goal of the CBDC, you know, right now is to is for is for Richard to buy a cup of coffee with it at his local store, it's got a mountain to climb because it's attacking WeChat and Alipay and Visa and MasterCard and everybody else in their adults. I mean, this is where they're strongest. You know, my my debit card, my contactless debit card works absolutely perfectly in the coffee shop. That's that's not the problem. You know, I think one of the things we should take into account from when we're trying to design CBDCs is we should be designing them so they work where money doesn't. Like what the, you know, there are there's stuff that doesn't work properly under the current system. You know, micropayments would be an example, and and you know, other kinds of online transactions and and certain categories of transactions. And it's got to, you know, I don't think I don't know we I don't know that we should judge CBDC on on whether you can buy a cup of coffee with it, because buying cups of coffee works fine. Um, we kind of want the economic boost that will come from having CBDC generate other kinds of economic activity. While the point of sale experience seems to be working pretty well, one of the challenges in using the wallet today is how it links with current bank accounts and how the wallet's recharged by users. Generally speaking, ECNY is a new currency. As another kind of RMB notes, for the access terminal of Bank of China, it can be used for online shopping temporarily or there are relatively few apps that support it. If I want to charge something on the app, I have to recharge the balance. And it's not very convenient on the whole. You can directly deduct any amount from your bank card with Alipay and WeChat if the balance is not enough. But you have to recharge enough amount to your ECNY app before making any payment. I mean, I think, um, I think you know, what the people on the ground are saying, to me anyway, I mean, First of all, it kind of it reiterates this point about there not being a burning platform. About, you know, we should be thoughtful about designing CBDC. We don't need to rush into it. But this point about transactional balances, I, I find particularly, that was one of the kind of revealed things from the interviews that really made me think. Because if we are going to use CBDC uh, you know, for transactions, then having a sort of smart wallet, which can anticipate and understand the liquidity requirements to make sure that the cash is available is, is a really interesting new way of thinking about things. And when you think about what that means for other people in the value chain, it's rather fascinating because, you know, right now you get a message from, I don't know, you get a message from your electricity company saying that you need to pay your electricity bill. So you log in and pay it with your visa card or whatever. Everything trundles through the existing rails and it gets sorted out and it all works. But imagine an alternative under a kind of request to pay system. Your wallet gets a message from the electricity company, you owe 50 bucks. So you click OK, pay the 50 bucks. Your wallet goes to the bank account, pulls the 50 bucks into CBDC, ECNY, sends it directly to the wallet of the electricity company. Forget all the people in the middle that used to have a role to play in this switches and authorization and networks and all this sort of thing the money switches completely outside the system so this issue about transactional balances and the movement over to kind of automated sweeping 
ML anticipation, managing those transaction balances on behalf of the consumers, I think is a fascinating topic. And by the way, I think from a CDBC design point of view, you want it to be used for transactional balances. We, we don't want CBDC, as far as I can tell, to be used for sort of narco-terrorist drug leaders, leaders to, to, to rack up their millions and bury it in, the, in their backyard. You know, we, we want it to be such that if you lose the device you lose the cash, right? So you want your AI to manage your transactional balances to support your own liquidity, but nothing more. And this is an amazing new area, I think, of financial services. I'm fascinated by that stuff. Yeah. Um, you know, Dave, I couldn't agree with you more. Um, we want the wallets to help us and to think for us and to be smart to be thinking yeah. about where mm -hmm. our lives are, where we're going. And uh, that's that's a, um, I think that's a fabulous, but it's a future looking goal for Absolutely. at least China's CBDC right now. So where they're at now is very interesting. Um, their goal is to make the UX as easy as humanly possible for anyone to use. Now that means somebody like you or I, Digerati, if you will, who are digitally switched on, um, all the way to my next door neighbor who is elderly, has some vision problems, and she needs to be able to use this. So um, what we saw from the People's Bank of China was this masterpiece of an app that's getting about a 4.5, 4.6 uh, score out of five on the iPhone store uh, with a just beautifully simple, beautifully smooth app that allows us all to dive into digital currency, switch from one bank to the other, all on the same app without, without having to go anywhere. Um, and it's, um, so far it's, from my use, it's it's been a five star experience. I've been very very pleased with this, and I give the central bank tremendous credit for having the software chops to build something so smooth and nice. Yeah, I thought that was interesting from from a couple of the interviews actually, Rich. I wasn't quite expecting that. You know, you sort of imagine something that's going to be built by like the government essentially to be a little bit clunky or. But the, but the people who use it, and I imagine they have pretty high expectations on the UX, CX side of things because of what they've learned from WeChat and Alipay and so on. It is interesting to me that the people that use it, they like they like using it and they like the interface and they like the way the app works. So we can definitely learn from that. Uh, absolutely. And uh, just speaking to something that you mentioned earlier, what it is not, and this is really important for people to understand, is that. The CBDC wallet is just that. It is a wallet. It is not a super app. In other words, you're not going to spend hours <laughs> on your digital yuan uh, wallet. You will spend hours on WeChat, chatting with friends. You will spend hours on Alibaba because you're looking at the shop and, and maybe buying things. But the ECNY app has... Um, no thought of being a super app. It is simply, hi, I'm money, and how do I get money from this wallet to the app ecosystem that you may have on your phone, including WeChat, Alipay, but all of the others. So it's it's very limited in what it does, but it does 
that limited task very, very well. This perspective on the user interface is supported by at least one of the Chinese consumers that we talked to in Shanghai. Its UI is relatively simple, with sliding up for payment and down for receive. It is easy for senior citizens to use, let alone the young who could use it directly. Between the ECNY and bank card, there's a dual online payment function, but it feels that it should be further improved. I think the main problem at present is that it cannot be widely used in all conditions. Its access rate in some large shopping malls is not very high, and it cannot be used for payment in many places. However, I see that many banks and many other apps are promoting ECNY, especially China Construction Bank. There are many application scenarios in its cards: bank card title, dragon payment, for instance, using ECNY. Usage is easy. The app is really beautifully designed.、Um, the main feature that is really unexpected when I used it was that a single app hooks up to multiple bank accounts. So if I have an ICBC account, I have one picture on the app showing me that balance and that app, and then I just slide it to the left, and I can get my other bank account, which might be WeBank or MyBank. So we also asked Henry Aslanian on how China's CBDC rollout has affected cryptocurrencies,、uh, particularly leading to the complete ban more recently. Of course, China has had numerous crypto bans over the last couple of years, and in the crypto community, we some often laugh about it that that China has banned crypto so many times. But there's no doubt right now that the the recent bans that we saw last summer、uh, are really here to stay.、Uh, of course, at the same time,、uh, China has been really pushing along with the with the development of the ECNY. Uh, one thing has been very clear is that China has taken the path of its CBDC, the ECNY, and that cryptocurrencies, especially decentralized cryptocurrencies, and the ecosystem that services is, is not going to be welcome in China. What has been the practical consequence? We have seen a lot of these crypto companies and crypto entrepreneurs move to places like Singapore, Dubai, and, and North America. A very good example of this is the crypto mining space, which of course has been completely banned. To put things in perspective, before the ban, over 65% of global Bitcoin mining was taking place in China. That percentage now is zero. Who has been the big winner? The U.S. Today, the U.S. has become by far the biggest crypto miner,、uh, Bitcoin miner in the world. Brett also asked Henry how he felt the CBDC might align with China's broader economic ambitions, especially in respect to trade and the internationalization of the ECNY. So on the ECMY specifically,、um, do you think China's intention is to tie this eventually to the Belt and Road to weaken U.S. dollar trade? Yeah, the the question of the、uh, ECNY becoming international is a very important question. It's important to understand that in the latest official announcements made by the PBOC, they made it very clear. That the intention is for the ECNY to be used only within China. However, this is an important. However, they also made it very clear that from a technological perspective, from a technical perspective, nothing stops the ECNY to be used at the international level. 
So I think at this level, really, the, the big debate whether the ECNY can become a global, uh, could have a global usage, is not really one that is a tech question, but rather more that is more a political and policy uh, level from that perspective. We also talked to international payments expert Dr. Ruth Fondhofer. After a distinguished career in banking, she's now an independent director on the boards of several payments and financial companies. And she also serves as chair of Payment Systems Regulator Panel in the UK. We asked her how the launch of a digital central bank currency in China has impacted cryptocurrencies there. Now, frankly, China has been uh, looking at crypto and the crypto ecosystem for the last eight years, and they've been gradually restricting trading, mining, transacting, starting off with the banks in 2013, then banning ICOs in 2017, Bitcoin mining 2019, and then most recently outlawed all of this altogether. Given that China had been leading the mining uh, with around 50% um, of the world, Bitcoin being mined in China, that of course had significant implications and mining is today led by the US. The whole complete ban, which really came through uh, in September last year, of course, similar to the other gradual and partial bans over the last few years, has led to volatility in Bitcoin, a drop in Bitcoin, and a reorganization of the market, as you would expect. Now, the reason why China did this um, can be clearly explained, um, concern of destabilization for their financial system, as environmental concerns, which are increasingly a topic because of the mining and also, of course, financial crime. Now, at the same time, we all know that China is piloting and gradually expanding their central bank digital currency project, the Digital Huan. And this is really a way for China to not only provide new technology to central bank money, innovate and provide a better government-led service in this area, but really also to make sure that whilst Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies have now been banned, um, the future of digital money with the addition of new technologies, smart contracts and the like will have to be uh, continuing and it should for China clearly continue um, in the hands of the government. It is a very neat way to internationalize the Juan gradually across the Silk Road. Um, and of course, China has actually done very, very interesting things in terms of how it's been implementing their project. Richard, can you add some perspective onto China's policy ambitions in relation to the ECNY, maybe looking out over the next 10 years or so? Sure. That's that's the big question. Everybody uh, really wants to know is, can ECNY help the Chinese yuan overtake the dollar? Can it replace the dollar? And the answer is complicated, but yes. But it's not the way that you think. Um, it's not going to be a sudden rollout and all of a sudden, boom, the, the ECNY takes over and you suddenly see this precipitous drop in the amount of dollar use. It is going to be a slow drip, drip, dripping of a thousand little paper cuts, one trade route and then another trade route, slowly moving their way over to digital yuan. So we're looking at a transition from what is essentially a dollar-based trade economy to an 
uh, an economy for trade that will still have plenty of dollar in it. The dollar isn't going away, but it will have a new competitor. And that competitor will be the digital yuan. And why are people going to use the digital yuan? Because it is an entry token. It is a key to something that the world hasn't seen yet. And that is a completely digital logistics system. Blockchain-based, and this already exists down in Shenzhen. It's being worked out between Macau, Hong Kong, and Shenzhen trade. And what we're going to have is you need a container of refrigerators. You buy it with your digital yuan. That money goes directly to the factory. They get built. They get progress payments based on how many refrigerators are actually filling the refrigerator. It's going to go to the customs where it will sail through the digital line at customs, which exists already, where they take a day or less than a day to actually make it through. Um, and it's going to arrive at your doorstep, at your doorstep faster, cheaper, and easier than if you paid with regular yuan and certainly easier than if you paid with traditional dollars. So it's this digital logistics system that is going to be the compelling reason why people will switch from dollars to digital yuan over a very long time. So perhaps not a big bang, but the way other changes happen, which is in two ways, gradually, then suddenly. But for today, the rollout appears to be relatively successful. But the ECMY wallet in China still has some functional issues to resolve before it's ready for prime time. Here's our China correspondent, again, interviewing a 20-year-old Shenzhen student on the use of the ECMY wallet locally in China. The interface is relatively simple and the operation is very smooth, but the recharge process is too troublesome. ECNY is cash without interest, and the balance in the wallet will not be too large. Therefore, you need to recharge your wallet frequently. And you also have to enter the balance, login passwords of your bank cards, the recharge amount and the withdrawal password of the bank card on the ECNY app. On the other hand, you need only one step to make payment with Alipay or WeChat. When you are shopping, if you need to recharge the ECNY wallet, you need to enter the verification codes issued by your bank to your smartphone. However, you could deduct money directly from bank cards through WeChat and Alipay without verification codes for your bank cards. Therefore, I only use ECNY after receiving red packets and vouchers. There's been a wave of regulation over the last couple of years, and indeed, most recently, President Biden issued an executive order which reinforced the role of cryptocurrencies in the U.S. economy and beyond. Yeah, the the uh, you know the renewed pressure for doing something about a digital dollar, uh, I, I think is good because you know the, the you know we should do something about a digital dollar. Whether that digital dollar is provided publicly or privately, and exactly what the functionality of that be, actually is pretty complicated, and I, I think it's going to take a while. I'm work, you know the Federal Reserve consultation. Uh, is out at the moment. I'm working on a response to that uh, in a particular context. And I think even my sort of simplified response to that is already 12, 13,000 words, something like that. It's a complicated topic. So I think, you know, the renewed uh, enthusiasm and pressure to do something is great. Um, 
my I, I have a feeling that what will happen is in the uh, short to medium term, uh, dollar stable coins will be adequate to fulfill the requirements of the marketplace. And then in the slightly longer term, we'll see some kind of digital dollar that actually has some pretty different requirements because, uh, you know, for everything you could think of, sustainability, inclusion, uh, sovereignty, you know, and this kind of stuff. So, so if you if, if you want a sort of prediction around that, I, I probably think we're still looking at private in the short term. It's noticeable in most places in the world. You know, you you mentioned earlier on about um, things like tether. I mean, people want people want dollars, not to put too fine a point on it. Like most people in most places in the world. Um, if they're moving money out of crypto into other places, they want dollars. They don't want a tether Turkish lira or a tether, you know, Ugandan or Tanzanian shilling. Or whatever. Unless you're El Salvadorian, right? Unless you're El Salvadorian, which got no choice because it's the law. You have to use Bitcoin in the store. Um, so, so I think, you know, I don't think it's a crazy prediction to say that the U.S. response in the short term will be better regulated stable coins. And actually, that's probably a pretty good solution for what the market needs now. But in the long term, it will be a more functional digital dollar. I don't think it will work quite the same way as the ECNY does. Once more, here's Henry Arslanian on CNBC's The Coin Rush, talking about recent regulations that he believes actually supports cryptocurrency growth moving forward. On the Bitcoin mining side, there's been obviously a lot of now reports coming up showing that how the data, how what percentage of Bitcoin mining is becoming green, but also regulatory clarity. Today, if you look at most financial centers, uh, we have to a certain extent regulatory clarity. They may not be perfect, but I think we're having increased levels of regulatory clarity. Uh, but also then there's obviously more uh, the entry of institutional players and platforms that these institutional players can trade on. For example, in the last couple of weeks and months, we have seen now a number of traditional financial institutions come in the market and make available to buy side players platforms that are institutional grade that these players can trade with. So, you know, the combination of all of these really acts as a catalyst. And I think we should expect to see further entry of institutional investors and institutional players entering the space. And that's actually very positive, not only for Bitcoin, but for broader crypto markets as well. We also asked Ruth Von Hoffer why China's ECNY project is one that's critical for those in other countries to keep an eye on. CBDC is a topic that is now being discussed by almost every central bank around the world. Most of the conversations and projects and experiments are relating to retail CBDC. And really, there are elements in the way China has designed their model that could be an inspiration for other countries. For example, um, CBDCs in terms of delivering financial and digital inclusion and also enabling those individuals that might not have the right hardware to still transact in this medium. Um, you know, there has to be the capability of doing offline transactions. No one uh, might have always access to available network. We have those examples even in countries like the UK, where not everybody has access to broadband because it just doesn't function. Um, and of course, in terms of the inclusion side, not everybody might have a smartphone that can transact certain ways of digital currencies. And therefore, the idea of a smart card which China has implemented is something that really allows every individual to transact in a CBDC, even 
if certain levels of hardware are not present. So from a sort of innovation and inclusion perspective, that is certainly something where we should all keep an eye on this um, project. At the same time, of course, CBDC is a topic of national sovereignty, of uh, growth of a value of a currency, internationalization of a currency potentially. And so as more and more countries are looking at thinking about piloting or launching a retail CBDC, a wholesale CBDC or both, we really have to think about, you know, how do we connect with other countries? Um, because the important thing for me is always, how do we also allow transactions to flow cross-border, particularly the wholesale CBDC area where it's about interbank transactions is a space where I would like to see more development and innovation to design CBDCs that can allow for efficient cross-border transactions. And we'll see whether, you know, that is something that um, China may look at as well in the future. But certainly in terms of their approach to uh, provide more of their digital Juan to more individuals, potentially outside of their physical country boundaries in a controlled way, is certainly a phenomenon that will have multiple implications across monetary sovereignty, um, currency internationalization, and and really the weight of a domestic currency like the Juan. The entire discussion that we have over central bank digital currency is sadly tied to how we think about how we use money today. So we think about, well, I'm going to go to the coffee shop and I'm going to buy a cup of coffee. And we project that onto CBDC, and that is a tremendous crisis of vision into what our CBDC future is going to look like. No one cares how you buy your coffee. And yes, while CBDC can buy coffee, that's not why we're doing this. We're doing CBDC because we're looking at a future where machines pay, where the 5G phone that you have, the IoT connected device, either at a home or more importantly, at a manufacturing facility, all of these machines and devices that make up our lives are going to need an ability to pay. And they're not going to use credit cards with interchange fees and other costs associated with them. Also, we're also looking at China and China is the really showing us clearly where we're gonna go. The central bank digital currency in China is not a zero sum proposition where whatever market the central bank digital currency gets, it takes it from WeChat and Alipay. It's going into totally new areas like paying people's salaries. You're going to get a salary paid in digital yuan. And people say, well, the digital yuan is going to kill WeChat and Alipay. Nothing further from the truth. The digital yuan is going to make more digital money flow through society. And where will it flow? Through the super apps, through the platforms, through their, mach their machinery, because they have the critical interface with human beings. And one last thing that's really critical beyond large scale, beyond machines, is smart contracts. Now, this is controversial. People say, 
well, I don't want a digital yuan that disappears. I don't want my digital dollar to disappear. Well, we have it already. We issue food supplement payments through digital uh, debit cards in the United States. They cannot be used at a liquor store. They cannot be used to purchase firearms or at, at other stores. And they actually expire if not used within about nine months. So people have a mixed experience with this concept of smart contracts, because on one hand, we certainly like them when it comes to social payments, because we want limitations on what people spend money on. On the other hand, we say, well, it's okay for those uses, but we don't want limitations on our digital dollar or digital yuan through smart contracts. But in fact, smart contracts are going to give us digital investment products that will be on our phone, digital insurance products, digital claims products, um, things that we can't imagine yet because they're sort of beyond what most people think about. So let's take this discussion of central bank digital currency and get it out of, I'm buying a cup of coffee. There's no need to do this. And Dave is right. We don't need a central bank digital currency to buy coffee. But what we do need is a currency that we can use in this digital future of 5G, IoT, smart contracts. And that's a very different world to the one that we live in today. So it's clear that China has bigger ambitions than, as Rich said, buying a cup of coffee through the ECMY wallet. Programmable money, smart contracts uh, tied to the Belt and Road. They're really thinking well ahead in terms of decades. And this is a learning curve for everybody. The rest of the world is watching China with great interest as the CBDC rollout continues. Will it weaken the petrodollar? Will it change the world trade? Will it provide Russia with a means of getting around sanctions in the future? All of this will uh, come out in the wash, as they say. But for now, China, as uh, both Henry Aslanian and Richard Turin have said to us, is many years ahead of the rest of the world in terms of understanding the implications of this. And that's the most important implication of what we've discussed today. If you want to see where CBDCs are going, for now, China is the place to watch. Thank you for joining us on this very special episode of Breaking Banks. I hope you enjoyed it, and we'll be back again next week with more fintech goodness. That's it from us. See you again on Breaking Banks next week. Breaking Banks.